And Jude is actually a brother of Jesus. He's mentioned in Matthew chapter 13 as a brother of James and a brother of Jesus. Uh, But neither Jude nor James were actually listed as one of the apostles. Uh, Jude, for that matter, didn't believe in the deity of Christ early on in Jude, or excuse me, John chapter 7, we, get, we read of that, that Jude didn't believe in his, the deity of Christ. But after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we do see Jude assembling with the apostles in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1, where they're gathered together and praying. So that's what the background of writing this letter that we have in the book of Jude. And as we read in Jude and several other passages throughout the New Testament, we find serious warnings concerning apostasy. Christ talked about it in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, Paul, whenever he went and visited the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, warned that it would happen within two years after him leaving. Peter warned about it also in his writings in 2 Peter chapter 2. But by the time Jude and even John wrote Revelation, It was no longer about warnings, it was about apostasy was at the doorstep and that apostasy was alive and well in the church in the first century. And that's the background and what this letter is really about is apostasy and the very all the things that are going on that lead to that. But I studied Jude for a very different reason. It's not uncommon for we as Americans, men and women alike, to say that we have a problem with authority. It's almost to the point that it's a cliche a little bit. But I have always kind of had a struggle with that. Early on in my young adult life, I was on the wrong side of the law. I spent some time in jail. um, And I recognized that our legal system or our justice system was powered by money, and money which I didn't have at the time. So I had a lot of uh, disrespect for the law. Early on in our marriage, my wife and I got pulled over probably six or seven times, and we were taken out of our vehicles, out of our vehicle, and we were separated, questioned, had all of the stuff pulled out of our cars, dogs brought in. I guess we just looked like drug dealers. And so it added and compounded onto this disrespect for authority. And it all came to a head a few years ago whenever. We were living in Fort Worth, and there was an event going on at the Texas Motor Speedway. It wasn't a NASCAR race or anything like that. It was a small event, and the police department had the roads coned off unnecessarily too much. And it took about half an hour to go a half a mile stretch. And at one point in sitting in the car with my wife and my children in the car, I made the comment, stinking cops. A few weeks later, we're in a restaurant, and we're ordering food, and we're standing in line, and my youngest child, who was six years old at the time, pulls on my arm, looks over there, and there's a table of cops, and he just goes, stinking cops. It was at that moment that I recognized my failings. It was at that moment that I recognized that I had a problem, that if not dealt with, it was obviously going to go on to my children as if it, I mean, it already had. So, in my desire to drill down and figure out the issues in my life, I looked at many places and I landed in Jude and spent a lot of time in Jude. And I've done a presentation on Jude many years ago, an overview of the book of Jude, but it's never been 
at this level, and it's very personal in the information that I'm going to present to you this morning. We begin reading in Jude, and he says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Jude's purpose is to warn of ungodly men, that a necessary thing, uh, warning that has to come. And I want us to notice early on, he sets up a series of qualifications. And he sets up this contrast immediately writing out in the first two verses when he talks about those that are called, sanctified, and preserved. And it's very important that we understand what Jude is doing here. He's wanting the readers to read this, and those that are on the other side and dealing and, and being rebellious and doing all these things, they would immediately recognize these qualifications as what Christ defines. He says those that are called by the gospel in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, we are called, wherefore he called by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we are sanctified, that we are set apart. That word means to make holy or set apart. And this is a process as you read throughout the Scriptures. It's done multiple ways, but mostly it says that it's done by the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 16, Paul talks about being sanctified, or excuse me, his job and offering up the Gentiles, ministering to the gospel of God, that the offering up might be acceptable being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. It's a process that is done by the work of the Word. That we are sanctified, that we are set apart by the Word of God. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 26 says that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the Word, excuse me, washing of water by the Word. Thirdly, He says those that are in Christ are preserved. Preserved means to guard, to guard from loss or injury. In John chapter 10, Christ talking about the lambs that are His, that they were given to Him by His Father. He says, My Father which gave them Me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of My Father's hand. So there's this element of preservation to be guarded against loss or injury. And that's a two-part process that God and Christ, they supply the power but it's upon those that are called, those that are sanctified. It is their responsibility to provide the faith. Jude's get right, gets right to the point as to what he is writing about. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was need for, needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So we're going to stop right there for a moment. He had an intention to write about something else entirely. His intention was to write about their common salvation, to encourage them in that salvation. But something else was a problem that needed to be dealt with. And now he says, I'm writing to you to earnestly contend for the faith that there is now a need to constantly contend for the faith, and here's why. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying our, the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That such men crept in unnoticed should give us a little bit of a pause. I want you to think about 
This is the first century AD, first century church, and this is new. Relatively new. And you've already got problems coming in with people taking God's Word, taking God's principles, and flipping them on their head. You've already got these problems of people being led astray by these ungodly people. Is that relevant today? It's just as relevant today as it was then. And you're going to see that some of the same things that Jude makes accusations of people happen today, thousands of years later. So how much easier is it for people today to take these same principles of God and turn them into things that they're not supposed to be used for? Other authors dealt with the issue in the church or dealt with these issues in the church, and there are many parallels, especially in the book of Jude, 2 Peter, and Revelation. And I've highlighted a few of these parallels that are throughout these three books. But one of the things I want us to notice that's very important about Jude is that this is all he deals with. Peter deals with other things. Revelation deals with other things. But Jude deals only with with apostasy, with the characteristics of these ungodly people that were coming into the church. Another difference is Jude is scathing in his letter. As he identifies these people and the characteristics and the condemnation, he does not hold back. He doesn't pull any punches. And he lays it all out. And this is kind of the reason that I got to where I was in my own personal study is because maybe there's sometimes we just need a good slap in the face. And this is what Jude provides. If the danger of apostasy was already present, this is a full-on warning for us as well, which makes Jude especially relevant today. So he's talking about those that deny the Scriptures the faith which was once delivered to all the saints. The Scriptures contain the faith delivered for all, once and for all, as a matter of fact, is how he puts it. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says there that the Word of God is breathed, or the Word is God-breathed, that is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly complete, equipped for all good works. Paul, whenever he met with the elders in Acts chapter 20 at Ephesus, he said there that they had, he had delivered the whole counsel of God. Paul, or Peter in his writing in 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, says that we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. So if we have all things as far as God is concerned, if we have the whole counsel of God, what else is there? I want us to notice as we go through these things that Jude talks about, this same process is extremely relevant today. How people get to that point which they deny God. It begins through denying Scripture. It then goes on to the process of perverting the doctrine of grace, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. The doctrine of grace that gives an excuse 
to sin. That's extremely relevant today as it was in those times. The number of times that Paul and Peter and the authors in the New Testament had to deal with this very principle, the fact that grace was not an excuse to sin, is still extremely relevant today. The number of times that we see people in our lives that deny the Scriptures of God, but want some form of godliness, will say that it's okay and justify their life because of the grace of God that allows them to sin and allow them to live their lives the way they want to live them. All because of the grace of God. And that couldn't be the furthest from the truth. The very thing, the grace of God, that was supposed to teach us something about pointing us towards God, people have taken and corrupted and said, it's okay that I live a, sin, a sinful life because the grace of God allows it. In Titus chapter 2, it says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And I want you to listen to what he says next. That it is teaching, the word teaching, us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That was the purpose of the grace of God. It wasn't to give us justification. It wasn't give, to give us an excuse for us to allow to sin, to live however we want to live, and say, you know what, God's got this. He'll take care of it because that's exactly what people do. I get to live the way I want to live, and God will take care of everything else. And all the while, what the grace of God is intended to do is to teach us Deny ungodliness. Deny the world. To live soberly, righteously, and godly. To point us towards God. Not towards the world. Not towards what we want to do. But to God. The next step in this process that happens over and over again is you eventually deny God's authority. Denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They were denying the authority of God. They were denying the authority of Christ that rightfully belonged to them. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, Christ told the apostles or the disciples at the time, saying that all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. This process has not changed for thousands of years. When it comes to justifying our lives and justifying our decisions and justifying what we want to do. This same three-step process Jude identified a long time ago. We deny the Scriptures, we rely on grace, and then ultimately we just deny God. And I want you to think about every major social movement that you've seen in your life where Christianity and the world clash and the world reigns, or excuse me, the world wins, this is the same process that happens over and over again. When you consider the subject of homosexuality and you consider this process over and over again, the number of times you talk to people or hear it said that, well, that's not what that Scripture means. Or we're just going to deny that Scripture and then immediately pervert the doctrine of grace and put it on God and say God's accepting of what I am and then immediately follow after that is we just deny God's authority. 
it's not changed, then that should be a warning to us. Whenever we want to justify the decisions or the life that we leave. Something I want us to notice that Jude also talks about here earlier gone. He says that long ago they were marked out for this condemnation. And I feel it's necessary to deal with this statement in this sentence because this feeds into the ideology of predestination that there are some that were marked for God and to be saved and salvation and that there were some that were marked for condemnation. And that's a pretty common ideology. But that's not what Jude is saying all at all. Jude did not say that these men were ordained to become apostates, that they were ordained to follow this process. That's not what he's saying at all. What he is saying is that there was an ordination as far as the judgment and the condemnation that was going to come for those that conducted themselves this way. Not that they were already set in that path. So to reinforce his points, Jude reminds us of three examples in which the ungodly did not escape God's righteous judgment. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which were kept not in their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of that great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So he can remind you what he's wanting us to do. He's wanting you, he's wanting the readers to earnestly contend for the faith, and he illustrates the judgment and the examples from the past. He talks about those in the wilderness and Israel, angels of sin, and the cities of God, God, Sodom and Gomorrah. And his actions are understandable as he's warning against the very thing that Peter had warned about earlier in, in 1st and 2nd Peter chapter 2. So in Israel in the wilderness, one of the reasons that we read pretty quickly through the book of Jude, and it's an easy read, is we don't stop and go look at the stories that he's talking about. Familiarizing ourselves with God's characteristics when it comes to the very things that Jude is talking about and how God dealt with them. It's easy to run over these real quick, but I think it's appropriate that we spend some time talking about each of these examples. He begins talking about Israel in the wilderness. <clears throat> Whenever you remember the story of what God did with Israel, how they were slaves in Egypt, and He brought them and delivered them through by the hand of Moses. And He brought them out of slavery. And almost immediately as He brought them out of slavery, what did they begin to do? They began to complain. At the first sight of trouble, they immediately said, hey, we need to set a captain and we need to go back to Egypt. We need to go back to slavery because this thing called freedom that God has given us isn't as easy as we thought it was going to be. And instead of having to work at it and struggle at it a little bit, they decided they would rather just go back to being slaves. They complained about not having food. God supplied them with mammon. 
They complained about not having meat. God supplied them with meat. They complained about not having water. God supplied them with water. They continually complained against Moses and his leadership. Multiple times on their way to the promised land, they said, find us a new captain, we're going back to Egypt. Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? When they finally get to the land which God had promised them, they sent ten spies in. Eight of them came back with a negative report. Joshua and Caleb, too, came back with a positive report. Who did they believe? They believed the eight. God said, you're going to die in the wilderness. Your carcasses will be in the wilderness. And I want you to think about the full effects of that. This is one time, not one time, one of many times in which the principle of obedience is connected to the principle of faith. And Israel is pointed at that time and time again. The Bible speaks about the security of the believer over and over again. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5 talks about that. It warns against the believer developing an unbelieving heart. The Israelites' unbelief or lack of faith was found in their complaining, their idolatry, their rejecting God's law, the lack of His trust in His promises. They couldn't enter in because of their unbelief, is what Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 18 said. Do you think that they didn't acknowledge that there was a God? That they didn't acknowledge the fact that there was a God in existence and all the things that He had done for them and delivered them? Surely they knew that. So that doesn't mean that they didn't believe. The fact that they weren't obedient was the, the fact that they didn't believe. And I want you to recognize what he's saying here. They were once saved. And God destroyed them. If there's no greater example of God's characteristic on those that He has saved and will willingly destroy, it's in Israel. kind of puts a kink in the argument today that once, you, once you're saved, you're always saved, doesn't it? If God willingly destroyed all of those that He brought out of Egypt, He goes on to talk about angels who have sinned. He says they, they did not keep their proper domain and left their own habitation. Peter referred, simply referred to them in his letter in 2 Peter chapter 2, as the angels that sin. And this may be a reference to Genesis chapter 6, where angels, uh, they cohabited with daughters of men, is what it says. But we're not real sure. But what is clear is that these angels end their condemnation. So, here's the process. Those that He has saved in Israel, I want you to look at that example. Because God destroyed them. Let's take it up a notch. The angels and God's presence 
God destroyed them. Thirdly, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis chapter 14, we're introduced to the city of of Sodom and Gomorrah. As Abraham and Lot, his nephew Lot, are traveling and they have a problem, their men begin fighting. And Abraham tells Lot, you pick where you want to go and I'll go the opposite direction. And Lot looks at the lands that were outside of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and he said, I like this one, I'm going to take this one. And he cast his tent towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Later on in Genesis chapter 18, God comes to Abraham and he's standing outside his tent and he reveals to him that he's going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, will you destroy the wicked with the just? If I can find 50 men, if you can find 50 men, will you not destroy the cities? And God said, I'll I'll not destroy it. And he goes, well, what about 45? And he goes down, 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 and he finally gets down to 10 men. And he says, if you can find 10 men in that city that are righteous, will you not destroy it? And God says, "I'll, I'll not destroy it. The next chapter... Lot's sitting sitting outside the city, and he sees two angels of the Lord walking up. And he recognizes them for who they are, and he immediately knows something's not good. He brings them to his home. Upon bringing them to his home, the people in that city were so vile and wicked that they said, we know you have two people in that house. Bring them out to us that that we may know them. That we may have relations with them. And Lot says, don't do this. And as a matter of fact, offers up his own daughters. The angels wind up blinding all the people that had come around the house. And they tell Lot what's going to happen and tells him, you have to get out of the city. Lot and his family flee and the instruction they were given is that you, you don't look back. Lot's wife would actually look back and she would be turned into a pillar of salt. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were completely destroyed by God. Peter says that it is an example to those those who afterward would live ungodly. Jude says it is an example to those suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. These examples that he gives about God's righteous condemnation should be a warning. It should be a warning to us in how we live our lives. It should be a warning to those that would come in and pervert the doctrines of Christ. So we have these examples of God's righteous condemnation. And now Jude takes and turns and he said, now here's the characteristics of these people. Likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuked thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts, and those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots on your feast of your charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds that are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit wither without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. He goes on to 
have a little bit of hyperbole in how he defines these people. That they were raging waves. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, men having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. And I want us to notice something, that when we read passages like this, we tend to go, it's the entire thing and not the individual characteristics. When we may struggle with an individual characteristic. We may look at that and go, well, I'm not all of these things that he's talking about, but I do have a problem with murmuring. And if you've got a problem with murmuring, you're in the same boat as all of these other characteristics. It's easy for us to read these laundry list of things and then go, I'm not that person. But I am a little bit. I use the King James Version of this for a very specific reason. I think the ESV is a little too nice. If I'm being honest, when it comes to this subject. I like the way the King James Version just flat out says they're filthy dreamers. They're guided by unnatural things. Do you know there have been entire religions that have been made based upon dreams? The conduct of people's lives based upon what happens in a dream? And Jude says that they're filthy. He also says that they speak evil of dignitaries. And I love the way the contrast that he sets up here. And he identifies the folly of their behavior. And he uses Michael the archangel as an example that whenever he was contending about the body of Moses that he did not bring a railing accusation against Satan himself. And I want you to take it one step further and think about Christ whenever he was in the wilderness. And he was being tempted by Satan. At what point did Christ turn and yell at him and give railing accusations and cursings and any of those things? Not one time did he do that. He continually did what? Referred to the Word of God. Michael, the archangel, didn't bring a railing accusation. He continually referred to God. And therein lies the folly of that. I have to admit, I do not like social media. When I was in the marketing department of my work, they said, hey, you're not very active on social media. And I said, you're right. And they said, you probably should be. And I said, I don't want to be. And they said, you should be. And I said, okay, I will be. And I started being more involved in social media. And then I read things on social media. And I read things that some of the people that I had respect for and some of my brethren, some of the things that they were saying about leaders and rulers... And I was appalled. So I went back to my work 
And I said, I'm not doing social media. How dare we put ourselves in a position where we can rail against dignitaries or those that are in positions of authority and leaders? When an angel himself wouldn't do it against Satan. But we have the audacity on any social media platform, anybody who will listen, to rail against our leaders, our politicians. How dare we? How are we justified in any cause in doing that? How dare I rail against authority and influence my children? How dare dare I let them see that in their own father? Doesn't matter if I agree or disagree. What matters is that I have to have the proper attitude Paul said that we should be paying honor to whom we should pay honor. Love to whom we should be paying love and respect to whom we should be paying respect. Not when we feel like it. And this was the characteristic of one of the the types of people that would come in and lead God away. Or excuse me, lead the people away from God. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, that is not my desire. But if I continue down the path of rebellious attitude towards those that are over me, how do you think my children are going to respond? Let's take this one step further and consider about the church and the authorities that we have in the church and our submission to our elders. Do you know, throughout the history of the church, there have been some places that they just don't want elders. Nobody wants to submit to another person that sits across the aisle from them. Are we respectful to our elders? Behind closed doors, in the car, If I don't agree with something that Carrie and Jason say or do, I dare not say that in front of my children. I dare not rail against them and place that seed of disrespect in my children. They speak evil of what they did not know. Paul, Peter, Second Peter uh, refers to the speak, speak evil of the things that they understand not. When I was in high school, I was in debate. And there was a debate tournament that came up that I didn't prepare for. I was procrastinated, procrastinated, procrastinated. It was in the middle of basketball season, so I didn't really want to do it. And about three days before the tournament, I found out the rules of the debate. The rules were you had three debates, and if you won one of those three debates, you could advance to the next round. 
And so I came up with this genius strategy that in my first two debates, I would get up there and I would just wing it and speak with all sorts of confidence. But what I would do is write my debates from the other people's debates so that by the third round, maybe I would win. And it worked. But at the end of each debate, you get a critique. And one of those critiques, the guy just brutally ripped me apart. And he said in there, it is obvious that you don't know a thing about what you're talking about. And he wasn't wrong. And he said, you can get up there and talk with all the matter of confidence that you want to, you're still wrong. Because that's exactly what I did. I got up there with an air of confidence. I bloviated all of these different ideas. But at the end of the day, I didn't know a single thing that I was talking about. No greater example of that happens time and time again when it comes to God's Word, to what God wants from us. The number of people that will, with every bit of confidence, talk about the grace of God and allow for sin in people's lives don't know what they're talking about. Whenever you refuse Titus chapter 2, that God is, the grace of God is to teach us to deny ungodliness, to teach us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this world. When you deny that, you don't know what you're talking about. When you deny that and say it is okay to live a sinful life, you have no clue what you're talking about. But time and time again, we give our attention to people that say those very things. Time and time again, our children, our children's ears are turned towards these people that say the exact same things. He goes on to talk about those who have gone the way of Cain. Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve, and they offer a sacrifice to God, and God says, Cain, yours is good, Abel. Excuse me, Cain, yours is not good. Abel, yours is good. And Abel was upset about this whole situation. And God comes to Cain and says, Hey, sin is at the door. If you don't deal with this, it's going to lead you down a path you don't want to go down. Abel didn't, or excuse me, Cain didn't listen to God and wound up in jealousy and rage murdering his own brother. In John, 1 John chapter 1, it's not as Cain who was of the wicked one and slew his brother. And why did he slay him? Because of his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. At no point in that story when you read about Cain and Abel, does Cain stop and go, what about me? What is it that I am doing wrong? What is it that I have done that is not pleasing to God? Now one time does he do that. In Hebrews 11, chapter 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. That it was by his faith. And no time did Cain look inwardly and go, it was about me. These ungodly dreamers, and we likewise fall into this very thing. Instead, we look at everything around us, and we go, it's that person's fault, or it's this situation's fault. 
And we never stop and think and say, I need to look inwardly. That the problem lies with me. Whether I'm in accordance with God's will, whether my faith isn't where it needs to be. He goes on to talk about Balaam in the book of Numbers. As Israel is beginning to conquer lands, there's Moab, the city of Moab, and the Midianites. And the king of Moab is a man by the name of Balak. And they see what Israel is doing, and they go to this man by the name of Balaam, and they say, hey, we need you to curse God. Or curse Israel for us, I'm sorry. And God comes to Balaam and says, hey, what do they want from you? And he tells them. Balaam goes back to Balak and says, you know what, I can't do this. And they offer him money, they offer him homes, and he says, I can't do this. But stay around, and we'll talk about it some more. And God has instructed him to let them leave. The next morning, Balaam gets up, and he gets on his donkey, and he begins to go to them. And in the story, I loved telling this story to my kids when they were younger because their eyes would light up. The donkey sees an angel of the Lord standing in the path, and he starts trying to go off the path. And at one point, he even rubs Balaam's leg up against a rock wall. Balaam continually whips and beats his donkey. And the donkey looks back and says, why are you doing this? Haven't I been your donkey since I was young? Haven't I pretty much always been obedient? Why are you doing this? And then Balaam engages in the conversation. And then it's revealed to him that the angel of the Lord was before him. Balaam does go talk to Balak and under God's instruction three times actually winds up blessing Israel. But the problem that came from that was that it would lead Israel to fornication and idolatry. In 2 Peter it says, They've gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozar, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. In Revelation, that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things unsacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. They began to marry these Midianites. They began to worship idols. And this was all at the feet of Balaam and what he caused them to do and the stumbling block that he set forth. And Jude refers to that and reminds us of that. Why? For money? For unrighteousness? The motivation in which we make decisions. That they perish in the rebellion of Korah. In Numbers chapter 16, a man by the name of Korah, who was of the Levitical tribe, comes to Moses and Aaron and says, you know what, you're taking too much upon you. Aren't we God's people too? And Moses immediately falls on the ground and prays to God that he doesn't destroy them. And God says, I'm going to destroy them. Moses sets up a situation in which these men come out of their tent. There was Korah and his people that followed after him. And he says, if they live a natural life, then I'm wrong. But if they die today, then it was God who is on our side, on my side. God immediately kills these men. And then later on actually kills more of the dignitaries that had kind of gotten caught up in it. 
And then later on after that, as the people come to Moses and they complain to him and said, hey, you've killed these people. God sends a plague and kills more people. Thousands of people lost their life because of the rebellion of Korah. And this was a rebellion directly against God's ordained leadership. And they, it was all under the guise of, hey, you're taking on too much of yourself for yourself. You need to give some to us. They were spots in their love feasts, is what Jude says to them. They feast without fear, serving only themselves. He, begos, he begins to talk about in hyperbole that they were like clouds without water. They were autumn trees that had never borne fruit. They were waves crashing, foaming with their own shame. That they were wandering and they were reserved for darkness forever. That they were stars that shined for just a moment and then disappeared. What he was saying is that they will, will reveal themselves. Evidenced by the way they walk, by the way they conduct themselves, and evidenced by the way they talk. Why was Jude so raw? Why is Jude used, have these scathing words? And I want us to go back to what we talked about at the beginning. You think about Jude, who did not believe that his brother was who he said he was. That went through this process after his death, burial, and resurrection and realized exactly who he was. Who had witnessed the spread of the gospel like wildfire. And now there were people coming in that would dare to tear that apart. You can understand why Jude is a little bit angry. You can understand why Jude is so harsh with his words. This was my brother whom I didn't believe, whom I watched resurrected and followed in his gospel how dare you come in and devile the authority of Jesus Christ? And as I said earlier, when we look at the whole picture, this is all about apostasy. But there's a truth when it comes to that process of denying Scriptures Convert, perverting His grace and ultimately denying God that we can get ensnared into just as easily. And I want us to consider Jude and his relationship with his brother as we close today. I want us to consider ourselves and our relationship with his brother Christ. What he has done for you. Your salvation is at His feet. 
Your salvation is for, is because of His blood. Your salvation is allowed because He allowed Himself to be killed by the very creation in which He created. And that's on a very personal, individual level. This morning, have you considered that relationship? Have you submitted to Christ? Have you submitted to His authority? We're called by the gospel. We're called to be obedient to the gospel. And we obey it in the waters of baptism. I'm also fully aware there are times that we may not be this whole picture that Jude pointed out. But there are those things that we have problems with. There are times that we have problems with rebellion. There are times that we have problems with complaining and murmuring and rejecting authority. And we need help. We need strength. We need to turn to one another and find that strength. And we can help with that this morning and offering up prayers on your behalf. If you would find yourself in either of these groups, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.